outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 372. And today I'm joined by renowned public land deer hunter, Tony Peterson, to break down exactly how he would handle some of the toughest, most interesting public land hunting situations I could think of. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, as you just heard, we've got Tony Peterson back with us. Tony is a good friend. He's a great hunter. He's been on the show quite a few times over the years, and I think he's one of the very best folks we've had on the show. So I'm excited that he's back. If you're not familiar, Tony Peterson has written for just about every deer hunting magazine out there you can think of. He hosts the Hunt for Real podcast. He has hunted all over the country, and he specializes, I think you can say. He doesn't do primarily or only, but he definitely specializes in public land DIY-type situations. He's got a great perspective from a lot of different parts of the country, and and he can, I don't know, he can just communicate what he's doing and why he's doing it better than a lot of folks, which is why I enjoy chatting with him. We chat with him today through the whole lens of this what would you do format that I started testing this past summer. We're going to continue to do these here and there throughout the season when we've got somebody who we've talked to before, but we want to try to get a different perspective from them. If you didn't hear those past ones, you should definitely go back and listen. We've done these with John Eberhart, Steve Bartilla, Mark Drury, and Dan Infault. And basically what I do is I put out a specific, unique situation, some hypothetical set of circumstances, and then ask the people to explain what they're going to do, how they would handle it. That's what I do for Tony. We chat through a bunch of different public land scenarios. We talk through some specific things related to my recent Idaho public land hunt. We hear about his recent North Dakota public land hunt, and even a little bit about the Wisconsin opener, which just happened. So it's good stuff great conversation. You're going to come out of this one learning some things that you can apply to your future public land hunts or even private land stuff too. So we're going to get right to that, but a couple quick heads ups on things. Number one, Das Boat Season 2. That is the fishing show that we've put out over at Meat Eater that has just launched. The second season of the show, it's terrific. It's on the Meat Eater YouTube channel now, that first episode. Got to check it out. The first one's got Steve renovating 
an old boat of a family friends and going fishing for lake trout in Lake Michigan. And then there's a whole bunch of other cool stuff from the upper Midwest. From everything I've heard, this is going to be top notch. And first season, the first season was definitely top notch too. So check it out again. It's at the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Speaking of other things we've got going on, you probably know this, but just in case you've been skipping over them, starting last week and again this week, you'll have seen our new Rut Fresh Radio miniseries episodes coming out, right? That's something we've been doing every year for five years now, coming out on Wednesdays. We've got a special mini episode where we interview four or five hunters from across the country, and we're asking them what kind of deer activity they're seeing, how are certain conditions impacting the deer hunting, what are certain seasonal factors that are influencing how they're hunting, what kind of tactics are working for them right now, all that kind of stuff we cover. It's going to get you the most up-to-date and helpful intel before your next hunts. So don't skip those episodes. Listen to them ASAP because they're timely. We put them out on a Wednesday. We talk to those people on Tuesday. And the following week, we do the same thing. So make sure you tune into those. And finally, speaking of up-to-date updates, this is the time of year where I start sharing a whole lot more over on the Wired to Hunt Instagram account as far as my own personal hunts, different things I'm seeing out in the field, different things coming out across Meat Eater and Wired to Hunt when it comes to whitetail content. So make sure if you're not already, follow Wired to Hunt on Instagram. Check out my Instagram stories, check out the feed, plan on pumping that up a lot here over the coming months with plenty of new content. So that is all I got for you. My quick updates. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. If your season started already, I would love some updates. Shoot me a note on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook if you've had some success. I hope some of these things you've been hearing have helped. And I definitely think what you're going to hear the rest of today's episode will help. So I think with that said, I will stop talking. I'll let you get right into it. Here we are with Tony Peterson. We're going to find out what would Tony Peterson do. All right, with me back on the show is the one and only Tony Peterson. Tony, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, I uh, I was hoping we could do this in person a few weeks ago when you were out here in Michigan on the back 40 with me, but we just, we were working too hard, too tired. You know how that goes. You don't want to do a podcast after 12 hours in the field, uh, hanging stands and stuff. So we're doing this one yeah, virtual. We, yeah, we kicked it around and we decided we would... Uh, the, the podcast episode would be way too low blood sugar and decided we'd do it when we were a little more rested after after uh-huh. a couple of weeks. So I, th- I think we made a good choice. I think so, too. I, I was forced into a couple of those end of the day podcasts. Like I did one two weeks ago after having driven 25 hours straight across the country and then getting to my destination, scouting through the midday and then hiking in a mile and a half and hunting and then hiking out and then driving back to our camp. And we recorded at 1230 at night after everything that I just described. (laughs) And somehow we managed to talk for about 60 minutes. I don't know if any of it made sense, but we did talk at least for the minimum amount of time. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, no thanks. No thanks. Um, But yeah, man, excited for a bunch of stuff because for the first time, actually, we've talked about doing it for a number of years, but for the first time, we're finally going to hunt together this year, uh, having you out in the back 40, which, which I'm, I'm excited about. I'm excited about it too, man. I, uh, had mixed feelings about, uh, burning up a week during the rut in Michigan when, uh, when I was sitting <laughs> on an Iowa tag, <laughs> but, I know, uh, I know. 
after getting out there and working on that property a little bit and seeing what's going on out there, I'm excited for it. And honestly, this is going to sound so bad, but I'm just excited to hunt a private property in November. Yeah. yeah and you know, it's funny after the week I just had, I'm excited about that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I want to talk about a bunch of different things, but I have to get your your thoughts on the back 40 a little bit. I mean, you're going to come out, as you just said, we're going to hunt together during the rut, but we wanted to have you out in August to just help with some of the scouting, some of the stand prep, some of the, you know, just hunting prep. And we checked trail cameras. We did a little evening glassing, all that kind of stuff. Um, what's your take on the property? You're seeing it now in year two. Um, what do you think about the place? Uh, man, I think it's cool. I mean, it's just, it's it's always surprising to me, even with, you know, I mean, that property, what, 64 acres? Yep. Yeah, you know, so that's not a big property. It's a nice size property, but it's always amazing to me when you see what can be done on small properties, you know, and it's, it's a weird thing when you, when you hunt a permission based property, like I have here in Minnesota, where around the cities where it might be 20, 30, 40 acres, something like that. And you can't work on it. You feel really limited as far as what you can do with it. You know, you're just going to show up and there's a couple of good spots and you're going to hope it yeah. works out. But when you have, when you can get your hands on a property and just work on it and do the things you want to do and develop it, it's like a never ending process that takes you into like a year round whitetail plan. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a, such a different thing than a lot of stuff we do with the public land hunting. And it's so appealing on some levels because of that, because you can look at that blank slate and go, I will, if I, if I want to, I'll never be done trying to make this into something else and something mm-hmm. better. And I, I, that, that property is just cool, man. There's a lot of neat stuff on there. Yeah. It's got, it's got a lot of potential and we've just been kind of slowly doing a few things here and there that I think are getting it there. But, but it, you know, as we discussed when we were there together, even just in the one year, I can see things changing that give me new hope. I mean, like the trail camera poll, we checked cameras and last year in August when we checked our summer cameras and I had cameras running for like two months, we didn't have a single buck over a year and a half old all summer on camera. And this year we checked and I'd only had the cameras out for 10 days or 12 days or something. And we had several bucks that were two years old, three years old, maybe a four-year-old, couple four-plus-year-old bucks on there. Um, it, it was a dramatic improvement from year one to two, at least on that in that one kind of sample size that we're looking at. Yeah, there was, a, there was a pretty nice representation of different year classes in there. And it's, you know, some of that probably can be attributed to having beans close in the time of year that you're there. But a lot of it is just the place is more desirable. It works for them better. And they're going to move in when you, when you make a property that gives them some more advantages and more places to bed and feed, they're just going to come there. That's what they're going to do. And so it's, it's amazing to see that progress in two years. Yeah. And, and like you said, it's a never ending thing for, if we had this thing for a decade, there's so, so much more we could do, but it is fun just trying to think through it. It's just a different kind of chess match. There's the public land chess match where you're trying to figure out what to do with a concrete set of circumstances, at least as far as the ground itself. Like this is the terrain. This is the habitat. Now deal with it. You've got moving variables like hunters, but otherwise you have to adapt to the situation while 
this kind of thing, you've got a set of circumstances that is fluid. I can change the circumstances. I can move this here. I can move this there. I can place this habitat feature there um, and then see how the deer change and then adapt to that. So there's, I just love that whole process in both types of places, but um, there's something fun about getting to get your hands dirty in this kind of project. So uh, it's going to be fun to try to try to apply the Tony Peterson uh, hunting tactics to the 64 acres of Michigan ground and see what happens. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one way to put it. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what we come up with in November. We got a little drop time buck. We got yep. a little, little droppy or whatever we were calling him. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a drop time or if it's a main beam that bends down at the end into a, into a drop appearance. Um, but he's a cool buck. Yeah, and, and we have the Spencer Newhart's buck out there too. Uh-huh, the really weird-sided one. <laughs> yep. Overcompensating lower voice one. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, yeah, man, there's a couple of nice bucks. And then we never – well, I, I think I showed you the pictures of that just big solid eight-pointer. Um, so, yeah, and who knows? September's here. Bucks rearrange their home ranges sometimes, so there might be different deer in there now. I don't know. But uh, there'll be something for us to chase. So Yeah. It's going to be fun. November will be fun. Um, so what I really want to talk to you about, the Tony, rather than back 40 stuff, was um, this. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about your North Dakota hunt. I know you just did a hunt in Wisconsin. I want to talk about that a little bit. But maybe we talk about that by way of a, a little game that I've been playing with some people. It's this whole idea of of throwing you into different situations and then finding out what you would do. So what I want to do, Tony, rather than my usual podcast where I'd be like, hey, Tony, what do you think about rubs? What do you think about, what do you think about, <laughs> I like them. what do you think about the rut? Um, I want to lay out as many different, relatively detailed scenarios for you and then ask you what you would do in that situation. How would you approach it? How would you think about it? How would you execute on the game plan? Um, all that kind of stuff. So I will give you as many details as I can about these different scenarios. And then just feel free to walk me through your thought process. Walk me through. Maybe you'll have to fill in some gaps. Um, but let's just see where that kind of thing takes us. And I've got some questions that are related to some things I know about your North Dakota hunt. Um, so feel free to jump into some anecdotes from that. Um, and we're just going to kind of see where all of that goes. And um, sure. I don't know. I think it'll be a fun thing to to get a new way of learning from you since you're always uh you're always a treasure trove of information and i think this will be a new opportunity for us to dig to a different level so are you ready for the wired to hunt what would you do challenge i am buddy okay well then let's start here let's say we are in north dakota and you're on your public land whitetail hunt that you like to do in states like that. We're going to say it's September or October, somewhere in that relatively early part of the season. And you've got a set of conditions that a lot of guys do not like to see. Now, I know that you are different in this, so I'm setting you up on this one, but I just want to hear a little bit more detail. You're on your week-long public land hunt. you got to get going after it. It's early season, and then a very hot weather front comes through. So everybody wants that cold front to come through, right? You get this warm weather pushing through. Most guys are going to 
maybe play it safe until the cold weather hits three days in. Let's say some cold weather's coming later and they're going to observe, observe, and then they're going to hunt tight to whatever they see on the third or fourth day when the cold weather hits. Um, but what would you do in that scenario if you had hot weather the first part of the week and then it's going to be cold the second half? Walk me through how you would be thinking about having those two different types of weather conditions and how that would change your strategy in this this quick hunt where you've got to make something happen fast. Um, you know, the, the beauty about a western river bottom situation is it's really easy to figure out bed to food and food to bed patterns because they're so much more visible than than a lot of places you whitetail hunt. So my my default setting in those scenarios is always to glass first and just see what's going on. And, you know, if you're talking a, a unseasonably warm weather for three days and then a, a cold front coming in, in that situation, what you're really talking about is, okay, are you playing the water at all? You know, are they, are they coming to the river a little earlier because they're thirsty or there's some stock tanks in there to glass? And then later in the week when it gets cooler, the idea is they're going to be moving more. Well, they might, they might come to the river earlier in the day, you know, before all the shadows have stretched across the land and you have that magical half hour. But really what I'm doing in that situation is I'm just going to look first because we, we think about deer being super patternable in the early season, which they are until somebody comes in and blows them up. But what I've seen in those states where you can glass really well is those patterns stick till the rut. Like they're, they're just timing them maybe a little bit different throughout the day and not going quite as early by the time it's October. But when you can watch them get up or you can watch them on their feet where they were probably really close to their beds or come back in the morning as they're heading to their beds, you see, you see these patterns unfold and it really doesn't matter. At least in my experience, whether it's October 10th or September 1st, they're doing the same thing. They might not be all bachelored up, which can actually help you. And so my, my default in that situation is if I can get eyes on them, I'm going to, if it's really hot, like kind of miserable hunting weather, I might just, I might just go to where I know there's water and sit it. I mean, I, I did this in North Dakota for the opener. We had, we had kind of a weird weather there too, where the one day it was really hot and overnight it was getting pretty cool. O- overall, it was pretty cool for, for the opener. But instead of just going back to camp, I went every day that I hunted, I'd, I'd sit a stand in the morning and then I'd go hike up the river to this stock tank I knew about that had water in it. And I would go sit on that in the midday hours for like four five, six hours. And then I'd go back to a tree stand somewhere along the river. So I hunted all day and it sounds like an awesome plan. I never saw a deer come into that water, <laughs> but there was nothing, there's nothing else to do. You know, you either go back to camp and you take a nap or you stay out there with the deer. And so I would probably do that if I couldn't get eyes on them. If I just had to go blind and say, all right, well, it's, you know, it's 75 degrees and these deer are going to be thirsty. They're either coming to this river or they're going to go to one of these little tanks. In the middle of the day, I'd probably go post up at one of those tanks and and try to sit a good crossing in the evening and in the morning. Now, what about a scenario like that where, you know, you have hunted some of these spots and scouted these spots and you know where there's water? But what if you were on a brand new property that you don't know where there's water, but you get that hot weather? Would you take that first day and know, okay, hey, I've got three or four days of really warm weather. I got to find water somewhere and, and just crisscross stuff until you find it? Or would you still try to glass and still hang hang back a little if you don't already know where it is? 
Um, man, it just depends. I, I would not set out out West to just randomly stumble across water. You know I mean? The good thing about Onyx and, you know, satellite imagery now is you can find water really easy, you know, from, so you, you can scout, you can do your e-scouting and find water, especially because most of this public land has cattle on it. And so you can see those trails spoked out from the water and, you know, you might have to mark a few spots and walk in to see if there's actual water in there at the time you're hunting. Cause sometimes there isn't, but I would, I would start there. So I wasn't, you know, wasting a bunch of time. And then if I couldn't find anything that was like a rock solid little tank or a guzzler or something, then it's going to be time to glass. And there might be a situation where th those deer are betting on a sage flat or something like that, where they don't have that you know, that, that pond or that tank, and they got to get to the river to drink. And you might see those bucks follow a route that doesn't take them out into an opening anywhere. And they can dip right down a bank, grab some water and go back up. And that's really important because if you can watch them drink in those situations where they're like, this is the safest place for me to go get water when I'm thirsty that is just a money setup. And all of that is, is getting on the spotting scope above the rivers and just watching to see who comes down and where do they come down. Let's look at a different situation now. Public land, same kind of thing, but this time we're moving into mid-October. And we're hunting mid-October in Iowa. Typically, most guys who go on their out-of-state hunts in Iowa maybe sometime in November, right? You saved up to get these points. You want to hunt to the peak of the rut when there's going to be giant bucks running all over the place on November 5th or 8th or 10th. But you've got a jerk of a friend who invites you to hunt in Michigan <laughs> in November. And so you can't do your aisle hunt when you wanted. And so instead, you try to get, you got to get creative and you got to figure out a way to kill a buck in Iowa in October. Let's say that you have to do middle of the month for some reason. Maybe we're going to give you a long weekend. You've got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, October 15th through the 19th, let's hypothetically say. What kind of game plan would you put together for that kind of hunt if I told you that that's not just a preliminary hunt, but that's your only hunt. That's your only four days to kill a buck with your Iowa tag. That's when you got to do it. Walk me through the unique set of strategies you can put in place to, to cash in on this really special tag in that, what some people would call a suboptimal time. Uh, some people, including me, yeah. would call it that. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a, that's a wild scenario pulled out of thin air there, Mark. Um, I, that, so, you it's know, close I was to home, opener, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's hitting real close to home. Uh, I was opener as October one. And so my, my plan is to get down there on the opener and then to swing back through in mid-October if I don't kill one then. And so just like in a lot of states, like maybe Michigan, maybe Minnesota, you know, if you're talking at least a mid-September or later opener, it's always, it's always worth playing that gimme on a field edge right away because you might get it. You might, you know, opening weekend, you might get that buck that comes out to the beans and you can kill him when you, in, in a place that's just dumb. You also know that the, the pressure is going to come in there on those field edges and the easy to get to spots. And those bucks are going to react. And by mid October, it's going to be a staging area deal on public land. I mean, it just, in, at least in my experience, that's the best scenario for, for getting on one when you, you know, when the lull is supposed to be happening 
is those bucks, you, you know where they're going to end up. You know, you can look, especially, you know, if you're in Iowa, you know, the destination food sources are out there, you know, which ones they'll probably be. So now it's a matter of going, okay, I'm not killing him on the edge. How, how far back into the cover do I have to get? And the good thing about mid-October is you can start to piece together a lot of rubs. There's going to be a lot of rubs out there. You're going to start seeing, okay, these, if you get in on some of those ridges and get a couple hundred yards off those field edges, you're going to see those places where bucks are killing time in the daylight. You're going to see those concentration of rubs. And so it, that for me is going to be just a hang and hunt, get in there, look around, you know, and I'm going to go in with a plan as far as like, okay, these ridges come together and, you know, try to, try to give myself a few advantages beforehand, but it's going to be one of those sort of freelance hunts where you walk in and go, okay, I don't know exactly where these deer are staging, but if I sneak through, you know, I'll probably bump some deer. It's, it's not going to be like an ideal scenario, but you're probably going to stumble across uh, a couple areas that are just tore up and you go, okay, this, this looks like where these bucks are. They're getting up out of their beds. They're coming here. They're not going to poke their nose out in daylight and they're going to stay here. They're going to mess around. They're going to make some rubs, maybe work a scrape that time of year. And they're just going to kill time until the clock runs out and it's dark and they can walk out. That's, that's like my, I, I love hunting that way. Let me put it that way. And so that, that'll be the Iowa strategy. Can you describe an example of one of these types of spots you would pick out on the map as giving you an advantage. You described like some ridges coming together. Uh, but could you give me a little more detail of what one of these spots specifically you'd be looking for on a map that would give you, okay, this is a spot that's worth me sneaking into and looking for that fresh sign and, and setting up, G- explain what that looks like in a little more detail for that October 15th kind of time frame. So, You'll have to bear with me here. What what I think about in those situations is what what what's the predominant wind, right? It's going to be a north or a west, probably. Um, so I'm 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 operating on that assumption, and I'm looking at these ridges, going, okay, which which way do they run? Like how how can I get in there and play the 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 most likely downwind side of this, where I might find uh, a bunch of rubs in a staging area because those bucks are going to get up. And they're going to cruise that ridge and they're going to cruise it in a way where the wind is in their favor. So they're going to be on the same side I want to hunt, but I can hopefully hang off the side a little bit and have my scent blowing out into nothing, blowing out into a valley. So those bucks are moving along and they're using the wind to tell them either what's kind of what they're kind of paralleling or what's in front of them. And, and so it's blowing across most of the woods that they're traveling through and they and they go, okay, I know I'm safe. Like I can, I can pitch off this into this valley if I need to, and I can smell everything up ahead of me. And you, you see them travel like that a lot. And so if I can, if I can pick out some of those spots close to a destination food source and, and, and look at them on the aerial photos and then occasionally, because I'm going to be hunting a lot of bluffy type of river, you know, type of land where it's pretty up and down and it's it's going to have a lot of benches in there probably. So I'm going to look at this and go, okay, can I get in this way? If the wind is blowing here, they're probably going to travel on this side of the ridge and feel safest. And, you know, 150, 200 yards away from this spot I like, there's some benches. You know, those big bucks operate just like bull elk. They love benches. They love these places where they can play the thermals and they have a whole bunch of escape routes. And so you can kind of, I mean, it's like, it's a moving target. You can look at 
Onyx and, and, and zoom in there and see these things, but you don't know until you get in there whether you're going to actually find the sign and whether it sets up correctly or not. But if you have a couple of those places picked out with that, that offer that kind of advantage to you, usually you'll find one where you're like, okay, this is, this is the concentration of deer. This is where the good one is working. And then you can really, you can really put it together. And the, the thing I like about those spots is if I get in, I, I'll play it a little safe and I won't, I won't push it too hard to get in too deep. And you can set up and you can observe too. So if, if you see one doing something, you know, and he's, he's crossing the ridge in a different way or coming out a little later than you expected, you can, you can move the next night and move in on them, you know, and you, and you might screw it up, but you can, you're on public land. You can get a little aggressive. And a lot of times the first night you see them and the second night you move in and get your shot. Yeah. And that's, that's something very reminiscent of what I was trying to do this last week. It is exactly that. It's, it's, it's trying to pick a spot on the map that has potential. Then you move in, uh, try to find the spot within the spot. And if you don't have that exact thing, then you, you set up, observe, adjust. But what if you go in there and you're doing something like that and you never find the sign that you expected or that you're hoping to see you go in there and it seems relatively barren. Is there ever a situation where you would just pull the plug and not even set up for the night and observe? You would just say, this isn't, it's two hours before dark. You walk in there and it's just sterile. Would you ever say, okay, I'm not even going to hunt tonight. I'm just going to keep scouting. I'm going to keep walking or I'm going to pull the plug and go glass a field or anything like that. Is there ever a scenario where you would do that? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, it's hard to imagine in Iowa you know, with, with a good deer population that if you had two hours left, you wouldn't at least set up to see what's going on. But I've had that happen in other States where I've wandered around. I, I can remember two times, once in uh, South Dakota, once in Oklahoma, heading out in on public land with the idea I'm going into this certain spot and I'm going to find a tree and set up and walking around for like five hours and not finding anything and ending up in a totally different area. And you know, in, in North or in South Dakota, killing a buck that night sitting on the ground in Oklahoma, just bailing on an entire property. So it's, it's just situational. You know, the the thing you have working, working for you down in Iowa is you're going to have, even on, even on hard hunting public land, you're going to have some deer to work with in a lot of different spots. And so it's just, it's less likely to think about having to bail on something, but in a lot of States you would, and you just go, okay, that didn't happen or you kind of, you have to kind of reassess what, what you consider to be just that banging spot, right? Like, is it, is it, is it like a no brainer? I got to sit here cause there's rubs everywhere. Or is there, is there a little bit of sign, but it doesn't really, it's not really getting your spidey senses tingling. Sometimes you sit those spots and you see something and sometimes you just do go like, this is, I'm, I'm not feeling this. I got to go figure something else out. And you just go use your time more efficiently somewhere else. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I want to better understand what gets your spidey sense tingling. So let's let's lay out this situation where let's say you've already gone on somewhere and you've you've picked out a spot, you've found a tree, you like a spot, you think, okay, this is a spot where something good could happen, but you have to access it for whatever reason. You have to access it from a different direction when you actually go into hunt it. Maybe let's say it's the next day when you go in from this new direction to hunt this spot that you think is pretty darn good. You start walking through some new cover and it's 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 ripped up. This stuff's different. This looks even better. Is there any scenario where you would have the spidey sense tingling so much that you would say, Oop, this is where I've got to be and yank your set and come to this new area? Or would you or would you just kind of stash that knowledge for the next day and instead sneak in push on through that sign to get to the spot you set up previously because you've got it. It's more well thought out. You already have it set. Uh, it's good to go. I guess answer me that and then describe to me what it would take from a sign to make you do that. If you would audible in that kind of way. So I, I, I try to be really open to that. And I think, <clears throat> I think one of the problems a lot of deer hunters have is we become so married to our ideas of how this should go. Like it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the, the private land management situation has gone to such extremes as far as like food plots and box blinds. We want to control it. Like we want to know we're going to walk in, we're going to take this trail, we're going to mm -hmm. climb into this stand and the deer come out here. When you're a public land hunter, you don't have that luxury. And I, I've, I find myself with, ideas all the time. Like I'm going to go, you know, in North Dakota is a prime example. 
I would have bet you a lot of money I was going to kill a buck on a little stock tank in there. And it didn't work that way and it never works the way I think. And so if I'm, if I'm sitting there and I go, okay, I got a, I got this Iowa tag and this is the spot I want to go to. And I'm walking through an area and it is tore up with rubs, just tore up. And there's a lot of buck sign there. There's no way I'm walking past that. No way. I'm in a setup there. And it, and I say that because over the last couple of years, I've killed a lot of bucks just going on my way to somewhere else on public land and stopping and going, holy cow, like I have to hunt here. These trails are pounded. These scrapes are tore up. These rubs are thick. And it's just one of those places where you, you can't not hunt it. And I, I get that. It, like that is a thing that is reinforced to me a lot in, in a lot of different States. And so I used to go out and go, I have to get to this tree or I have to get to this spot because this is where it's going to be. All my research says this. Now I'm like way more open to the possibility that when I'm walking there, I'm going to find something that's way better than what I was heading to. And I, I can think of several public land bucks I've killed where in the, just in the last few years where that happened to me and I hunted stupid close to a parking area or a place that just on paper, you'd be like, no way. But when you get there, it's a different thing. It's kind of like the, the elk situation now where you hear people, you know, the whole get seven miles into the backcountry thing is so pervasive that you hear about a lot of kind of seasoned veteran elk hunters going, you know, I kill a lot of my bulls in this gnarly little drainage right off the road now because everybody's going past them. And in the whitetail world, the same thing happens on a smaller scale. And so it's just, where are they? Like, it's just a matter of where do these deer, where are these deer right now? And that's where you hunt. And you find that just by seeing the sign. Like it's for me, you know, I, I've talked about this on here a bunch of times, but I, I absolutely love rubs. If it's a middle of October thing, I like scrapes too. Not, a, not as much as rubs. If I see a ton of rubs in a spot, uh, that's, that really does it for me. If there's some good trails in there, that's just kind of a bonus. But if I see that concentration, a good buck sign there, I don't, I'm not moving past it. Yeah. I've heard you talking about in some of your podcasts about this idea of finding these buck concentrations where on mm -hmm. public land, you'll find these little hot spots where they've, they've all kind of found their safe place. And it can sometimes be in un unexpected places as you just described. Um, other than what you just described, is there anything else you're looking for to help you know, oh, I found a buck concentration, one of these zones, or is it simply that a lot of rubs, a lot of good trails, um, anything else as far as finding those and knowing that you got it? No, I mean, it's either, there's no way to do it unless you see them, you know, and I'm not, I just, I saw a post recently, I can't remember who it was, uh, talking about how, you know, he would go into public land and he had a, a end table full of trail cameras. There was probably 10 trail cameras on this that he was getting ready for his trip. And I look at that and I go, well, that's probably one way to find these if you have enough time. But I don't have most of my trips probably average four days, four days of hunting anyway. And so I'm I'm really reliant on the sign that I find. If I find a lot of fresh sign I know bucks are using it now and I want to hunt there. I don't have time to put out a bunch of trail cameras and let them soak and then figure out where the concentrations are. And so it's just a matter of 
sign, sit, observe, move if you have to, or, you know, a lot of times if you find that sign, you get it right, right away. And if you get it wrong, you just keep looking. Back to the, back to the scenario we just outlined before that, when we talked about walking this new route in to a prepared location, and then you hit this fresh sign. Would you, if you find it, it looks so good, you know, you got to hunt it right now. Would you rather sit in the ground right then and there so you don't need to push any further and just you just figure out some way to hunt it right then and there? Or would you want to go past it, get your tree stand, which you hung the night before maybe, pull it down, sneak back, set up in a tree at the new spot? Which which situation would you prefer? Uh, it's totally situational, man. Um, I If I can get up in a tree, that's my that's my preference just most of the time. But sometimes these things happen depending on where you're at, where you do find that place that's awesome and the the tree situation doesn't work very well. And so you do have to sit on the ground. But for the most part, if I'm, if I'm hunting a constant, like if you, if you want to take the Iowa example, I'm going to get that stand. I'm going to, I'm going to get up in that tree. And, you know, that's one of the things that, I think is, is sort of a barrier for a lot of people in this public land deal. And the saddle thing has helped a lot, but it's just that, that kind of thing happens all the time where you get up in a tree and you can't trim and you look at it and you go, this, I can't shoot anywhere. Or you get into a spot and this, the trees where you want to hunt don't work. And it's, it's put stands up, take them down or climb trees, climb yeah. down. It's, it's a, the, the willingness to just do that and you know that's where the comfort with your saddle or your stand setup is huge and just 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 understanding it's kind of like dealing with the pressure the, the other hunting pressure like you just have to know that this is a part of it and you're gonna have to work around it like it's it's you're just not gonna want to settle and so you have to work through it so in that situation most of the time I'm gonna go get that stand and you know it's gonna it's gonna be a little more effort and a little more work but it's probably gonna be worth it yeah. Okay. Well, here's something very similar to, or that's related to this whole idea of yanking stands, moving, adjusting, all that, and what a pain in the butt that can be. What if you've got a spot that you liked a lot, you, you hung it the night before or something, you've got a spot planned, you've got a good reason for going there, you're excited about it, and on your way in, you see fresh boot tracks partway back there. So somebody else has come in here. You don't know exactly how far they went. You don't know when they broke off. You don't know if they pushed past where you wanted to hunt or if they just scooted off to the side and are ahead of you. You just don't know, but they're somewhere back there. Do you keep going with your original plan or do you say, you know what, it's just, it's too likely that this person pushed into something that's going to screw me up. I'm audibling and going to try to pivot to something that is, is definitely outside of this guy's uh, sphere of influence. I'm probably going to just carry on with my plan. And I, and I say that because, you know, like, like in North Dakota last week, there was nowhere I could go where I wasn't encountering people. I've never seen anything like that. And so if you, if you keep, you know, if you're trying to get away from people nonstop, sometimes it's a zero sum game. Like you just can't do it and you just have to go, okay, the deer are showing me they like this spot. Maybe this guy blew it up. Maybe he didn't, but I'm going to take a flyer on it and hope he didn't. And I've seen that a few times in my life. Like the, the, the buck that I killed in Northern Wisconsin last year, I walked into this chunk of public 
thinking I was going to go to this Creek bottom that I, that I've hunted a few times and, and find a crossing and just set up on it. And on the way in, I, I checked a little old kind of disused logging road that I found winter scouting that had a ton of sign on it, but it's right by the road. And it's in a place where tons of people go in and they, they ride their four wheelers in there and they go try to shoot grouse off their four wheelers. And it's, it's a high traffic area, but it's just, just off of that. And I walked in there with a totally different plan, just peeked up onto this, saw this, this scrape was there again. It was fresh. I could see some rubs down the, the logging road. And I thought, if you walk past this, you're an idiot. Like they're, they're showing you they're using this right now, even though people have been in there, there's fresh four wheeler tracks in there. So I walked in there and set up and the first deer that came out was like a 160. Ooh. And then I killed, I mean, I, a legit giant, one of the biggest bucks I've ever seen anywhere. And later I killed a great eight pointer that came right down the logging road. And it was just one of those deals where you could assume these deer are blown out or you can think, man, they deal with this. You know, they're, they're, you, a lot of your listeners are probably hunting public land that gets hunted every day. You know what I mean? And so it's like, if you're, if you're going to play that game where you're like, well, I'm going to go where nobody goes. A lot of people don't have that option. Like a lot of people just don't, they have no way around that. So you have to hunt where other people are and those deer still live there. They still do things like they're, you know, they're the toughest deer to hunt, I think, but you just have to work with what you're given there in some of those situations. So yeah, fresh boot prints sucks a lot, but it's something you, you kind of learn to live with. And if the deer are showing you, it doesn't really bother them, then it shouldn't really bother you. Hmm. Now, I guess if I'm in that scenario and I see something like what you mentioned and I see that fresh sign in that spot that's well hit, I would have thought to myself, well, yeah, there's still deer using this, but it's happening after dark. How do you, how do you, how do you know, or, or what makes you think that this might be a daytime spot versus a nighttime despite all the stuff you just listed? Uh, if it's in the cover, how much cover is it in? I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm sure we've talked about this in past episodes. I'm not a big believer in the nocturnal deer thing. I don't think there are very many true nocturnal deer out there. And I know that's like contrary to popular opinion, especially in October. But when you watch, I was thinking about this this weekend when I was hunting with one of my daughters, we had, we had deer come in pretty early on, on opening night. And the first three does that came in, they came in, they bedded down in front of us twice and they got up and moved a little bit. And I was thinking like every time I ever see deer bed down, they don't bed down that long, even when it's in the morning and you know, that buck comes back in and he lays down, he might lay down for an hour or two and he gets up, go, goes, browses on something, nibbles around. I don't think, I think we give them way too much credit for being nocturnal. So if you, if you get into the cover, the, 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 best cover they have, the thickest woods or something that they're going to feel pretty secure in, I don't think you deal with a lot of truly nocturnal deer. So if I see a bunch of rubs way back on a ridge and it's pretty thick and there's multi-flora rows in there or something that's that's really giving them some good cover, I, I'm just going to assume somebody's going to move through there in daylight. Like Those bucks feel good enough in there to move around and and do their thing and not expose themselves, but they're in a place where they're comfortable. And I, I think that, I think that exists all over. We just don't get in there enough to know. 
Now here's an interesting scenario we're dealing with a lot more today related to this where right there, there used to be this assumption that you're going to have all this activity from humans and from other hunters in certain places like the edges or by access or whatever but as public land, land hunting's become more popular there's a lot of people preaching you know go into the bedding areas go deep get into buck bedrooms you know all that kind of stuff there's a lot of really eager guys and girls now that are pushing into the really best best stuff so what if you're going into hunt and you realize that all the pressure is going right into the interior? Um, how do you how do you adapt to that? Because I got to believe, right? If that if that intense pressure is being applied to the bedding cover right then and there while you're hunting, the deer are going to react in a way that maybe you can get them on these unexpected places on the outside, but maybe they're just jumped out of their skin for the next few days and they're, they are nocturnal or something. What would you do if, if all the pressure you're seeing from other guys is this really aggressive right into the good stuff kind of pressure? Yeah. Uh, well that's, that's one of the things I, I love the, the hunting public guys, but I'm like, can you guys leave one bedding area alone out there? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm kind of convinced that they might be killing bucks because the bucks they're hunting are so exhausted because they never get a good day's sleep because <laughs> yeah. they're in the bedding areas every day. It's wearing uh, down. Dude, what, what I think about that is you just have to work with the variables you know. So if it's, a, if it's an evening hunt and you know they're going to the beans or this cut cornfield – that's, that's the best information you have. So if you think, okay, well, I think this is the bedding area. Cause I, I think a lot of times we get really, really locked into the belief that we can just go, this is his bed or this is the bedding area. And they use this every day. I think that those bucks have lots of different beds and lots of different bedding areas. And if somebody goes in there and they throw their saddle up and they're sitting in one spot, and not playing the wind very well, those bucks have other options. They know, they know where to go. And so you're just, you're just working on the premise of like, I know where he's going to end up, but where is he now? And how is he going to get here? And so again, it's just a matter of if, if people are going deep and you know, like we, we dealt with this in North Dakota, like I saw people going into places I've never seen people go into. And I know their bedding areas because I've watched deer walk in there and bed there. But somehow those deer magically find trails and make it down to the river in the evening anyway. And so I think what happens is we, we sort of, we, we overestimate the amount of influence we have on their daily life. So if you go in there and you jump a buck and he takes off, it's very easy to assume you put that buck on a nocturnal pattern. You, you, you blew out the area and I've had it happen where I've walked in on hanging hunt situations and I've jumped bucks out of their beds and set up and they've come back. You know, they used to call that the bump and dump or whatever, but I don't, or, you know, if you sit on public land long enough and you see bird hunters come through, those deer are so good at, at just avoiding us very like subtly, very minimally that we're not probably pushing them around the way that we think they are. We're probably not killing our chances to the degree that we think. And it's, I think it's more of a mental thing to, I think you, you gotta be out there and you, you have to see this stuff play out enough to know, okay, this wasn't the end of my trip. 
this isn't going to, these guys walking through here, pheasant hunting or doing whatever, this isn't the, the end of this spot. It might change it. Those bucks might relocate a little bit or something, but I think a lot of times it's, it's in our head and we, we kind of hit the quit button and go, well, this is over. And now I have to start over and you're not operating on the same way. But when you spend a lot of time on these hunts where it's like, okay, I got four or five days to get it done. Here's the best spot I found. You realize that we're kind of overplaying that a little bit. And, and a lot of times, even though it really, really sucks when people come in and other hunters blow up your spot or you walk through the wrong area and blow it up, it maybe isn't as damaging as we a lot of times think. And we just have to get back up in that tree and figure out what happened. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill now with a pellet grill you can smoke roast and sear what i like to do on the same grill you can go from low and slow okay on smoke boost mode which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees it's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame this this, this is my way of bull saying if i was going to cook roast one way that's how i like to do it sear roast Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Okay, so you set me up perfectly for my next question, which is a very, very, very specific scenario. I'm just a really creative person. I can pull out a lot of details, so so bear with <laughs> me here, Tony, as I lay this one out for you. But let's hypothetically say you're hunting some public land. You have been dealing with hunting pressure in other spots all over the place, so you decide, you know what? I'm going to go to this new area based off of something I saw in the summer. I think there's some good bucks in this general area. I'm going to look at the map. I'm going to try to pinpoint the most likely spot that there might be buck bedding and then the most likely route they would take down to this food source. You sneak in two miles, you set up in a tree, and you actually see three nice bucks, including two giants, but they're just out of range. 
Okay. So you see these bucks. One is like 50, 55 yards. The next one's about 10 yards behind him. So you say, okay, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I'm going to move to get to the other side of them and be within shooting range. They happen to come through the same way. And nothing spooked them. They moved past me, past you very easily and calmly. <laughs> Disappeared. Next day, you sneak in, you make your move, you come in through the backside, so you don't touch, you don't walk over anything these deer came through you. There's no way you spooked anything. You get set up, it's great. One of the three bucks comes out along with four other deer. They walk all within shooting range of you, but the big boys never show. You think, okay, this is this is this is where these bucks like to come through. I still haven't spooked anything, I'm feeling good. So the next day, you decide, okay, I want to get, I want one more good sit in this spot because it feels like this is the killing spot. And, and to my knowledge, I haven't spooked anything. So you come in the next day with those conditions. You just get to the tree when all hell breaks loose. Bunch of kids start driving UTVs all around you, yelling, screaming, knocking metal together, yeehawing, uh, just making a mess of everything. You see them drive back into where you think these deer were bedded. You see them drive to the other side of the property, way down this other section, driving in there, blowing stuff up. You got out of your tree and you tried to make a move on the ground, but they went that direction too. It was just a disaster of the night. But they drive out just before last light. And at last light, you see a decent number of deer still pop out and go right by where you were sitting originally or where you wanted to sit originally that day. Now, that happens. It's frustrating, but you tell yourself, man, we're going to keep at it. We're going to figure out how to adjust. Next day, a huge storm rolls through with like damaging, dangerous winds, like 60, 70 mile an hour winds, high wind warnings, don't go in the woods, blah, blah, blah. So you don't hunt the next day because of that. But a cold front comes through. So now you're two days removed from this disaster night, but temperatures are like 30 degrees lower. And you did see some deer moving immediately after the saboteurs came through. So you're thinking, okay, these deer might have been looking at that as just like a, a farmer in here doing stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So would you, after all that, would you go in and hunt that killing tree that you still have set up because – it seemed to be in the right spot prior to the disaster because you knew exactly how the bucks were moving through that area in that spot. And you could look at that pressure from the crazy people coming through as, as hopefully this one-time thing that the bucks thought was farmer intervention or something. And they reacted to it, of course, that night. But very quickly, a day passes. They go back to their normal things, maybe. You're two miles back from public access. You think these deer are feeling relatively calm. And you did see two giant bucks moving in daylight very calmly, you know, a half hour before dark. So number one, would you go back to that same spot for one try more? Or would you say, no way, man, that was a disaster. Uh, you already hunted in the general area two previous days. Even though you don't think you spooked them, they might have caught your ground center something coming back, blah, blah, blah. I'm pulling up stakes and pushing in deeper or somewhere different because there was just too much commotion. <laughs> so very detailed. What would so, you do, Tony? <laughs> the very first thing I would do in that scenario is I would I would order up a bunch of books on witchcraft and casting nasty spells, and I would try to make sure that those kids caught every STD <laughs> out there in the Twitter sphere, or the the Tinder sphere, I should uh. say, uh, and hope that they. Uh, I hope it burns when they pee for the rest of their life. Let me put it this way. <laughs> After casting some spells on those guys, yeah. I would uh, I would go hunt it one more time. Just 
just because, you know, so if they drive through there and they're acting like pricks and they're doing that and trying to blow the deer out, but you see deer still follow the script after they're gone, to me, that's a pretty good sign. And when you've got those bucks there and you're talking good bucks, that's somebody's home range, maybe both of them. And so they, those guys might've really killed your chances that night or maybe for a couple of days, but that deer's not going to probably move out of there. He's just going to probably play it a lot safer. And if you've, if you got a place, you feel it, you, you feel confident enough to name it the killing tree, get back in there and find out, you know, it just, just to see, just to know, because when you've got to start over on something like that, now you're talking a multi-day process for just finding other bucks and finding spots to hunt them. And you've, you've got enough invested in there where it's worth the risk just to see how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I did. And, uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, that's what I did. And uh, I didn't see shit. <laughs> so but did it you, didn't did work you out. cast any spells and give those guys a bunch of STDs? I cast the spells. I don't know what happened, but uh, I did <laughs> I did cast some bad karma their way. Um, and it's it's funny. So I, I, I sat there again that, that night to try to – I kind of was thinking some of the similar things you were. And I thought, you know what? I got to try it one more time. And it ended up being like just a completely dead night. There were a couple deer in there when I snuck in. It was a doe and a fawn. And I thought, okay, yeah, they're feeling comfortable. It's all good. And uh, and then it was just dead. And then some moose came through. Now, I talked to some guys that said that lots of times in these western places when you get a bunch of moose in some spots, that'll push deer out for a day or two. They don't seem to like to mingle as much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that could have been a thing. Um, but funny story. uh just to kind of put a cap on my trip that I didn't mention in my last episode where we described this trip. Um, for those that aren't following, I'm describing the exact thing that happened to me about seven days ago <laughs> in Idaho. Um, so I sat, as I just described, and didn't see anything. The next day I decided, okay, I'm moving back to a different place where I had hunted about six days beforehand and we were seeing a bunch of deer, but then there was a bunch of hunters over there. And, and that's what pushed me to this killing tree area because of that pressure. But I'd been keeping track of the parking lot in this other spot, the original spot, and there hadn't been hunters there for three, four days. So I thought, okay, let's go try this zone and push in deeper from the places I was originally hunting. And I'll try that. So long story short, I push into this new place. I get into a really cool looking area. I felt really good about it. Um, I don't end up seeing a deer I want to shoot, but see some deer and have a good night. And I'm walking out and I'm just thinking, man, um, this whole trip has been just hunters and just every day dealing with a new hunter, a new group of hunters, a new group of pressure. And it's, it's been just constantly trying to adjust. I'm like playing pinball. I go here and then I'm bounced off another wall of hunting pressure. And I go here and I'm bounced off another hunting wall. And as I'm walking out and thinking, you know, finally, maybe I found like the threshold of where you need to get to and push past to get past all the guys in this, this area I've been hunting. And as I'm thinking through all this, the end of the hunt, the whole trip's done. And I'm, thinking through all this stuff, I smell something strong. And I'm like, what does that smell? And I keep walking and it's a really strong smell. Now it's after dark, it's evening. Um, I'm hiking out now and I realize I'm smelling weed. I'm smelling marijuana. I'm like, is someone burning one down out here? And I start shining my headlamp in the trees and I'm walking out and there's a hunter sitting in a tree in front of me smoking a blunt after dark oh as I'm hiking out. And I'm like, <laughs> if that's not the most like, representative way to end this hunt i don't know what is <laughs> uh, yeah 
I, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah. I, I, I guess I, sh- I wish I was more surprised, but I'm kind of not. It kind of sucks that that doesn't, that isn't as shocking as it should be, Mark. Oh yeah, man. It was, uh, it, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, that, that's how this hunt should end. <laughs> uh, so back to scenarios that aren't my scenarios, back to imaginary scenarios then. Um, a couple more here for you, Tony. What if you are hunting and you realize that you've got a situation like we've just described where there's this pinball of hunting, whether it's your North Dakota hunt where there's more hunters than you ever saw before or whether it's my recent hunt where it was more public land hunting pressure than I've ever dealt with on a Western hunt before. Um, and you realize like, wow, this isn't what I was expecting. But you are seeing some deer and you know there's some nice deer in the area and you, you know they're there but there's just all this stuff that's seriously blowing up your hunt. When and how, if at all, do you begin thinking about adjusting your standards? So I know this is something that happened to you. Walk me through how you think about that. When you go into a hunt and you think, yeah, I want to shoot a nice buck. I don't know, maybe it's a three-year-old or a four-year-old or it's a nice eight or whatever it is for you. Do you change it? How do you change it? When do you decide to make that change? Uh, that just depends on who's walking by me at the moment. Uh, but really that one of the things like your example in Idaho being on those big bucks, what, what that does is it, it shows you how valuable a backup plan is or a backup spot is. And I, I run into this a lot on public land where I'm like, this is the area I'm going to, this is where I'm going to kill. It's going to be awesome. And then you get there and there's people all over. And if you don't have a couple backup spots, it gets really rough in a hurry because you're playing catch up. And so just, just as an example, in, in North Dakota last week, I ha- the, the best group of bucks that I saw scouting, was there were five bucks in there. The biggest one was a solid 150-inch deer. There was another one that was probably 140 in there, another pretty good one, and then two smaller ones. And I watched those deer walk through this patch of cottonwoods on their way to the river. And in the next morning, I watched them. They were already back across, but it looked like they had probably come through the same area. And the the biggest buck was was hard antlered. Some of the some of the other bucks were still velvet, and he was very dominant. There there was a point where I could watch him fight bucks and I could look in two other spots and see two other buck fights going on. So at one point from one glassing spot, I could see three buck fights going on wow. and they weren't like, you know, knock down, drag out They're They're sparring, pushing each other around, but you know, they were feeling it when they, when those deer go hard antler, they, they, they try them out. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see. I've seen that many times. And so I thought, okay, I've got, this is the, this is the, group with the biggest bucks. I know where they are. I know if they come out in that spot, I can get in there and hang a stand and, and be on them tonight on opening night. And I saw other bucks and I go, okay, the, these bucks came in from this way and they, they crossed the river here or these bucks fed along here. And so I had some, some backup options because you can see, you know, a long ways there. You can see deer a mile away. And so opening night, I went in on those big ones. I ended up seeing I saw five bucks. They came down, they split me and just, I was just off just a little bit, just enough where it matters when you're bow hunting. It wouldn't matter when I was gun hunting at all, but with, with a bow, I, I was just a little bit off on them. And so I thought, okay, 
tomorrow I come in, I move just a little bit and try to pick one of these, one of these deer off as they come down the trail. And I, I had some backup spots, but I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to give these bucks my best effort right now. Cause I think I have a chance of killing them and they're, they're great public land deer. Well, when I went back in there the next day after my morning sit, I was going to get into this stand and I ran into some other hunters in there who were looking for mule deer and they had just burned through that area. And I thought, I'm still going to sit here if they leave. But I talked to them for a while, super nice guys, and they wouldn't leave. And I'm like, my stand's like 150 yards down the river. And I'm like, I want you guys to go because I don't want to climb into the stand while they're standing there. Uh-huh. And they wouldn't leave. And so I'm like walking down the river, like pretending I'm looking at rocks and just kicking at fish. I'm like, please go away. <laughs> like, and I kept kind of like peeking over my shoulder, you know, like you guys gone yet. And finally I'm like, they're not going to leave. They're going to stay here. They got something, you, you know how it is when you talk to people out there, you, you, you can barely keep your lies straight because you don't want anybody else on your deer. So yeah. you're like, yeah, I'm seeing some stuff, whatever, yeah. you know, or like they seem to be here or there. But you don't want them to know, like, I'm on a bachelor group that's coming down to the river right there. Yeah. And so they wouldn't leave. So I'm like, okay, I got to go to a backup spot. And as I go, I go to, I go to my backup spot, get the stand up. And I'm like, the wind's terrible. Pull the stand down. It's four o'clock. And I'm like, I got to move just a little ways to a different crossing. I move, get up, get that stand hung, pull my bow up. I look, here comes this guy walking up the river, <laughs> turns around, walks away when he sees me. And I'm like, man, same kind of deal. Like you're just bumping into pressure everywhere. But I knew that crossing, I was, I was not going to run into 150 inch. I knew I had a chance to have a okay buck come by there. And at that point I'm like, okay, I know, you know, I have two other buddies out there who are, who are bumping into pressure everywhere too. I'm like, it's, it's time to, if, if a good shot comes my way, seriously consider it. And so I'm sitting there that night. And I look out way out and I see this buck walking at me and I'm like, you know, a little velvet two-year-old. I'm like, I don't, I don't really want to shoot him, but if he comes in and gives me like a really good shot, I'm probably going to regret it if I don't. And part of that was we only had a few days and we had this massive rainstorm that was supposed to be coming in. And a lot of people were bailing on our campground because they didn't think they'd be be able to get out because of the road. And so I'm like, I can't get, I have to get home. So now a four day hunt might turn into a two and a half day hunt. And so I'm like talking myself into this buck as he's walking in. Right. And he gets closer, comes down below me and never, I never get a shot. And he's within like five yards of me. He goes down the river, meets his little buddy, comes across the other way. And, you know, they're messing around kind of, kind of pretending to spar, but they're both still velvet. And I'm like, man, do I, do I want to shoot him or not? And he comes up the riverbank and I'm like, my buddy's going to kill me if I don't kill this buck. And I'm like, I don't have a backup to this now. So if, if I don't do this now, I have to start over and I don't know what to do. And so he comes up and, and gives me a pretty good shot. I'm like, I got to take it. So I killed him. So when I lower my standards is when I feel like my my time is really running out and there's a good opportunity in front of me. You know, if, if those guys hadn't come down, I would have worked those, that bachelor group a lot more just to see what would have happened. But it's just, you just got to play the, the, the hand you're dealt. And a lot of times on public land, when you go, it's going to be a four and a half or bust, it's going to be bust. I mean, it might be years of bust. And so it just, 
it just is what it is. You just do what you have to in those situations. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's the tough one. I just, I, for whatever reason, get my heart set on something. If I know something's out there, I have a really hard time settling. And so the last two years, I've seen a buck that catches my eye and I just get, Ooh, if that's, if I know that's here, I have a really hard time not trying. And so, uh, same thing last year happened this year where I, I saw those big boys and I just couldn't bring myself to shoot the really nice eight pointer the next day. Um, he wasn't big, big, but he was nice. You know, he was a three-year-old. Um, I just couldn't do it. And, and I don't think like looking back on it, I still, I still think I owed it to myself to at least give myself that one night at least to see if they'd come. Now the rest of the trip after that whole debacle happened, then I switched to, okay, yeah, I'll shoot any nice deer. Um, but then I didn't have the shot at the nice deer. Um, but it is a tricky one, that tricky thing between, you know, what do you want out of this hunt? Do you want the fill tag? Do you really want something that meets your original goals? I don't know. It's probably different for everybody in every different situation, but it's, it's one that it's a, at least I've found it's a good idea to think through it before your trip to kind of have some idea of what you're going to want to do as the hunt progresses rather than be in the tree, the deer is walking your way and you're having that tough situation like you had where you try to figure it out in the moment. I mean, that, that can set yourself up. It worked out okay, but it can always, it can go the other way too. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, you and I are in different places. Like I don't, I was thinking about this the other night, uh, when I had my daughter out in Wisconsin, I didn't, I didn't bring my bow with, because I didn't, you know, this was her hunt. I wanted her just to this, this is going to go however it goes with her, but I knew there was a chance we were going to have a big one come out, just just kind of a wild scenario, and we had a bachelor group come out, the biggest buck was a nine-pointer that's all of 150 inches, and he came out too far for her, but the same exact distance I had just shot that North Dakota buck at, and I'm like, this deer would be in trouble if I had my bow with, and uh, this is the biggest buck I've ever seen in Wisconsin on private property. I mean, it, a, a legit awesome deer, just incredible. Wow. And I was thinking about it afterwards. It didn't bother me at all to not get that deer. Like it, 10 years ago, I would, you'd have to do like a wellness check on me because I'd be suicidal. <laughs> now I don't care. Now I, I just don't care about the big buck thing nearly as much as I used to. I still love them, but I realize like it doesn't really matter what you kill. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, you have to do what's good for you and what makes you happy. And I realize like the, the chasing the big buck thing for me solely was like a false God. It didn't, it didn't work because it didn't, it didn't really matter that much. And, and what it did for me in some ways was made it less fun to be out there. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much. And I realized like, I don't, I, I want to focus on those deer to some extent, but I don't care about that outcome so much anymore. And so I'm just, I'm kind of, and I was, I was talking to Mike Shea from Field and Stream about this the other day. It's like you, you find yourself when you've been in the hunting industry a long time and you've been doing this a long time, you find yourself going, you, 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 there's this gravity to certain things where you're like, I just, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy this. And I know there's certain paths I can take as a hunter that will erode my enjoyment. 
And one of them is a, is a dead set focus on big deer. And that's just me. I've been down that road. And part of, part of that, what that leads me to is I want to hunt lots of other stuff. So like if I, if I fill these tags, like if I didn't fill that North Dakota tag, I'd have gone back somehow. And what that would have taken away from me is a chance to duck hunt with my dog or pheasant hunt with my dog or something. And I'm terrified of that because I really want to do that because it's fun. And so I know like if I don't, if I don't control this thing, it'll, it'll get out of hand and I'll stop enjoying it. And so that's like a weird way of explaining that. And and I know people are at different places and they, they just have to, you have to get out there enough to understand what, what you really enjoy. And if that's like, Hey, it's gotta be a four and a half year old or nothing. That's what really, really blows the wind up my skirt. Go ahead. Like if that's what makes you happy, that's freaking awesome. Do that. But if you're going, I'm not, that's, this isn't happening for me. I'm not enjoying this. And you know, I really wanted to shoot that buck, but I feel, I felt like people would laugh at me on Instagram or something like, dude, just figure out what makes you happy out there and go lean into that hard. Cause that's what this is for. Yeah. Yeah, man, that is, uh, that's important stuff for, for me and everyone to hear these days. Absolutely. That and the fact that I'm also going to take away the expression, whatever blows your skirt up. I like that. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. No, but that's this, this is the kind of stuff I'm constantly thinking about out there, too. I'm very goal-oriented. I'm very driven by what I set my sights on. Um, so I'm constantly struggling between what you just described, having fun versus the fun of pursuing a tough challenge and pushing through challenges. Like I enjoy that, but then also sometimes I don't enjoy it. Um, we'll have those moments of frustration. And so, yeah, it's something that I'm constantly working through and trying to find that right balance point. So it's, it's a good, it's a good thing to bring up. I'm glad you did. Um, I, I just, I look at it like, uh, when I see you fishing out there in Idaho now a lot, I, I know exactly what's going on there. Like you're finding a new outlet in the outdoors that isn't the pressure of, of big bucks and your job that's built around killing whitetails. It's something different. And there's an enjoyment level in there. You can, you can watch like Lee Lakoski super into fishing right now. It's not a, like, it's not an accident. You know, the, the dudes had to work around whitetails so long. It it pushes you either you, either you walk away or you find other things that are an outlet. Yeah. And I think I think it's easy to understand when you talk about a Lee Lakoski and you can just sort of look at his life and go, okay, well, yeah, it, it seems like that guy should go find something fun to do in the outdoors that doesn't involve making a product around killing big game animals. But I think I think a lot of hunters out there especially in today's, you know, social media, everybody's out there showing you how wonderful they are and how awesome their selfies are in the tree stand. Like, I think everybody has to figure that out. Like, I think we all bump into those issues, regardless of what you do for a living, regardless of whether you hunt two days a year or 50 is just find those things that you enjoy out there and get after them. And if, if it's not, you know, like if you don't enjoy the pursuit of one booner out there, like, Find something else. Find something else that, that you really enjoy about it and, and do that. Go fishing. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's anything like that. Yeah. It, 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 there, there's something really to be said about not just having that single focus, but to be somebody who can learn to just enjoy the outdoors in a lot of different capacities. Yeah, very, very true. Okay, Tony, we got to wrap it up. 
a little earlier than I usually like to do, but I've got some other time constraints. So I want to ask you a few rapid fire questions to, to close the sucker out. Um, but first, I guess one, one bigger question and then a little rapid fire series. And, and this is a hypothetical I've posed to everyone. I've done one of these, what would you do podcasts so far? So I want to see how you'd approach it. Let's say I'm all powerful. I have control over the country and hunting privileges, and I am going to take away your right to hunt, your privilege to hunt for the next 10 years. You can't hunt anything for 10 years unless you kill a mature buck. Let's say three, four years, something like that. You've got to kill a mature buck this year, but you only have one day to get it done. So you've got to pick the one day of the season in which you think you have your very best chance of killing a three or four year old buck. And I want to dis- I want you to tell me what the day is going to be that you're going to pick and then describe to me with as much detail as you can, like the hypothetical best spot you would try to hunt for that very specific day. Oh man. Uh, it's going to be November 7th. You know, the weather is going to be set up just perfectly cold front, a little frost on the ground when you get out there. And it's going to be on just some type of absolutely banging pinch point, some kind of terrain feature, you know, maybe a, 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 a steep bluff that comes down to a river and just pinches it down and they have to go through there. That's in a state like Nebraska, we'll say would be probably, I would, there's a strong possibility if you pose that to me. And said, "You're down. You're done for a decade unless you get this done." It would. I'd probably be pointing my truck to Nebraska on November sixth to get in there on the seventh and do that. Beautiful. All right. Now the rapid fire. You can only answer with basically one word answer: yes or no. Or I'll give you a couple options here. Um, we'll just go through these really quick, and then we're going to wrap this sucker up. So, Tony, does the moon matter for deer movement? Yes or no? Uh, yes. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes or no? No. If you could only have one of these for the rest of your hunting days, which would it be? Rattling antlers or grunt tube? Grunt tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? Fixed. Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting with your bow? Yes or no? Yes. Which state has better deer hunters, Michigan or Iowa? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Probably Michigan. (laughs) There we go. All right, Tony, that's all I got for you. (laughs) All right, buddy. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to do this. I had fun, and uh, I look forward to chatting more, hopefully, on your podcast soon and and then getting you out here to Michigan. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. Hey, also, real quick before you go, for people that want to listen to your podcast or follow along with your stuff, where can they find that stuff? Uh, everywhere podcasts are, it's, you know, it's a hunt for real podcast. I also host sporting dog talk, which is all about working dogs, hunting dogs. Uh, anybody who listens, who likes dogs should check that out and they're everywhere. So if you're, if you're listening to wired hunt, you can find my podcast as well. Perfect. All right, Tony. Thank you. Let's chat again soon. All right. Thanks buddy. See you bud. And there you have it. Another episode of the wired to hunt podcast in the books. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, make sure you check out Das Boat Season 2. Make sure you're listening to those Rough Fresh Radio episodes and make sure you're following Wired to Hunt on Instagram, 
for all things Wired to Hunt, new content, all that good stuff. Best of luck out there in the woods. I'm hoping you guys are putting down some deer, having a great time out there. Be safe, have fun, and until next time, stay Wired to Hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.